On Wednesday, March 31st, marked day three of the murder trial of Derek Chavon, the white Minneapolis police officer who murdered George Floyd. He is on trial for murdering George Floyd on May 25th, 2020. Videos played in court on Wednesday included the first publicly heard defense of Chavon's actions in body cam footage. In the video, Chavon was heard saying, we got to control this guy because he's a sizable guy and it looks like he's probably on something, end of quote. The video also showed uh, George Floyd crying and repeatedly telling the officers, please don't shoot me as they initially approach him in a car. After being taken outside, uh, Floyd told the officer that he didn't know what was going on and that he was scared as blank. Later on in the body cam footage, a witness is heard begging police to check George Floyd's pulse as he was thrust face down on the concrete ground. Also on Wednesday, Charles McMillan, a witness who saw police detaining George Floyd, said he was telling Mr. Floyd to cooperate with police as they were trying to get him into the police car. He was one of the first bystanders on the scene. McMillan reportedly told Mr. Floyd, quote, you can't win. Becoming noticeably emotional, um, Mr. McMillan broke down on the stand after watching graphic footage of George Floyd's arrest and what happened after that. The video showed police trying to get George Floyd into a squad car, then struggling with police. George Floyd was clearly heard saying that he's claustrophobic and was struggling to breathe in the video. Mr. McMillan then told um, police officer uh, Siobhan, I don't respect what you did. Meanwhile, we also heard from Christopher uh, Belfry, a Minneapolis resident who was parking his car on the street corner when he saw officers approach the vehicle George Floyd was in. Belfry recorded a phone video that showed George Floyd handcuffed and sitting on the ground outside after officers pulled him from the car. He added that he started recording when he saw one of the officers draw his gun. Also, Christopher Martin, an employee at Cup Foods during the time of the murder, said he spoke to George Floyd when he was in the store. Um, he claimed that George Floyd seemed to be under the influence, and uh, Martin said he sold him cigarettes, even though he could tell the $20 bill he was using was likely counterfeit. After Martin told his ma manager about the $20 bill, the manager ordered him to go to Floyd's car and try to get him to come back into the store. After Floyd didn't return, Martin said the manager told another employee to call the police. Minutes later, George Floyd was handcuffed on the ground under several Minneapolis police officers, and Martin could be seen on surveillance video with his hands raised over his head. During his testimony, Martin expressed guilt. He said, quote, if I would have just not taken this bill, this could have been avoided. The fourth day is resuming today, Thursday, April 1st. Let's go to a couple of clips now um, about um, witnesses and, and bystanders. Let's go to those clips now. The, the paramedics loaded Mr. Floyd into the ambulance. Were you still there at the scene? That is correct. All right. 
At some point, um, did you make a 911 call? That is correct. Uh, did call the police on the police. Right. And why did you do that? Because uh, I believe I witnessed a murder. Officer Tao and Chauvin, I don't, he put his hand on his mace. They put their hand on their mace. I can't remember if they actually pointed at us, but they definitely put their hand on the mace and we all backed back. Did you feel threatened? By the police officers? Yes. Did you feel threatened by Mr. Shop? Yes. Someone said he hasn't moved and then I and then in over a minute, was that your voice too? Yes. Why was that important for you that in, in terms of saying over a minute? Were were you worried about the length of time that this was going on? Yes, because I knew time was running out or that it had already. What do you mean by time was running out? That he was going to die. One of the biggest moments of the day was the emotional testimony of Charles McMillian, who witnessed some of the earliest moments of George Floyd's arrest last Memorial Day. McMillian broke down on the witness stand sobbing after watching graphic video of Floyd's arrest. Oh my God. He had to huddle outside in the hallway with prosecutors who tried to calm him down, according to our pool reporter. The mood in the courtroom shifted quickly as graphic video of Floyd's arrest played on several screens. Some jurors took notes, others looked away and refused to watch the video. Floyd's youngest brother Rodney was in the courtroom and he also looked down during the video. Chauvin alternated between taking notes and looking up the video of himself on top of Floyd. Another highlight Wednesday was the testimony of 19-year-old Cub Foods cashier Christopher Martin. Martin was the one who took the counterfeit $20 bill from George Floyd the day he died. Martin said he felt disbelief and guilt after seeing Floyd taken away in an ambulance. If I would have just not taken the bill, this could have been avoided. Another powerful moment Wednesday was during the testimony of Lieutenant James Rugel. Prosecutors played several minutes of body cam footage from some of the officers who arrested Floyd. Do you know why we pulled you out of the car? Because you was not listening to anything we told you. Right, I didn't know what was going on. You listened to us and we will tell you what's going on, all right? The jurors have now heard from 12 witnesses for the prosecution. Trial is expected to resume tomorrow at 9 a.m. and more witnesses are expected to take the stand. Okay, hey, so thanks the, for watching. The clips were from one Associated Press and USA Today. I'd now like to welcome our guest, uh, D.A. Bullock, award-winning filmmaker and social practice artist in the field of story-based community organizing. Based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, D.A. Bullock is also involved with Reclaim the Block, a coalition to demand that Minneapolis divest from policing and invest in long-term alternatives. D. Bullock, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Margaret. Okay, so you are on the ground in uh, Minneapolis, and uh, tell us a bit about what you're hearing, what seems to be the the mood uh, on the street. Uh, we know that people have been coming out and, uh, you know, doing uh, some protests, but just give us a sense of uh, the, you know, the feeling in the community and the mood on the street right now, D.A. Bullock. Yeah, the, I think the community is, is feeling edgy and nervous. Um, a lot because of the way uh, the police and the, the state and the, the city has responded. They've erected a lot of barricades and razor wire and a lot of things that they're saying are in preparation, which has put people on edge. But also, I think, you know, um, people are are expressing a lot of heartache 
and and trauma re re revisiting a lot of trauma because you know they know this i think um mr mcmillan's testimony yesterday and and how he he broke down on the stand i think is really it illustrates a lot about how we're all feeling as community members especially in the black community because we've been through this before we've we've lived through this before and 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 many times in fact and where you know black folks have been killed in the city of minneapolis by the the police department and generally usually there's not even a charge uh, involved in that so i think that's that's the general feeling yeah, and I, I, I did see a, a photo of a mural uh, that said collective PTSD, and I could believe it. I mean, I'm, you know, of African descent, not based uh, where you are, but certainly I think black people across the country are feeling uh, very vulnerable. And, and D.A. Bullock, just putting this in an historic uh, context, on this show, we have often uh, talked about uh, Joy DeGruy, who's a sociologist on post-traumatic slave syndrome. And in a speech, a talk that she gave uh, in Los Angeles that our show sponsored, uh, she described um, lynchings, back in the day lynchings, and how entire families would come out dressed, white people dressed in their Sunday best. They would bring their children, they would bring sandwiches, etc., to watch the lynching of a black man. And then afterwards, part body parts were kind of cut up. I mean, it's very gruesome and sold. There were postcards, you know, uh, made of it. Um, So that is the image of the earlier spate of lynchings um, that went on in the United States. But what happened with George Floyd, a lot of people are saying in the United States and also across the world that people witnessed a lynching. And perhaps that is why millions of people on in every continent and in over 2,000 cities came out in protest. So I hear what you're saying, because it, it seems to me as though the community uh, close, uh, the community where this happened, um, are now experiencing yet again, living through and watching a lynching. Your response, yeah. uh, D.A. Bullock. Absolutely, I would agree wholeheartedly with Dr. DeGruy. And and just, you know, I think people are coming to terms with how the history of policing is not decoupled from what's happening uh, currently. You know, that, that we are still in the, uh, an experience of a system that will lynch uh, black people and has been designed in order to control black people and, and keep them um, in an incarcerated or carceral system. So I, I think, you know, I think people are coming to terms with that, especially a lot of the, the white residents in the community who never had that experience before. We, we know that by lived experience, black folks, but a lot of white community members are just dawning upon them like that this is the lived experience, the current lived experience of a lot of their black neighbors and in Minneapolis in particular, starting to realize the history of the Minneapolis Police Department and also um, sort of the history of, of policing in general and, and what it was designed for in, in the first place. Yeah, and, and part of that, you know, history 
also has to do with the fear of the black body. I mean, we uh, earlier in uh, our coverage on the trial, um, we had an uh, attorney uh, on, uh, and we were talking about about this. I mean, the way Chauvin talked about, well, you know, he was just this big guy, and you know, you had to suppress suppress him. But it does seem uh, to many of us that just being in our own skin. Um, criminalizes you or, or, or puts you at risk uh, some way, somehow. And uh, certainly for, for black men, particularly, you know, the, the kind of size that uh, George Floyd um, was, there seems to be that fear that uh, seeing someone like George Floyd immediately means, well, he's up to something or, you know, you know, officers are at risk, et cetera. I mean, that kind of uh, ster- racist uh, stereotype and the criminalization of black bodies. Uh, your thoughts on this, D.A. Bullock? Yes, I, 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 it's, it's very, we're seeing that re- real time, sort of in, in um, Derek Chauvin's own testimony or, or the recorded part of that, you know, when the Minneapolis Police Department showed up, they already had in mind that George Floyd was a threat on site. And so um, that is, is sort of throughout the entire police department. You saw, like, there were four officers on the scene, and you saw them all respond the same way, that George Floyd was an immediate threat. And then that precipitated all the the activity that came afterwards and that led to his his murder and so knowing those those facts i think we know that the entire system has that as its standard which is anytime you see a black man and and he's sizable the way uh chauvin described him then that's the standard procedures to treat them accordingly and then so so we understand that 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 is that is Minneapolis Police Department. Why? That's not limited to just Derek Chauvin. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the the history in um, Minnesota uh, about um, people dying in police custody, but particularly black people dying in police custody, but also this use of uh, neck restraints. And in fact, uh, it was described, I think, in um, in the court as it used to be called, you know, a hog tie. And Minneapolis police used neck restraints in at least 237 times, um, you know, during um, around 2015 or so, 16% of the incidences, the suspects and other individuals lost consciousness. Um, And this is from the department's use of force own records, right? Um, So uh, your thought on that, but also the work that you're involved in with Reclaim the Block and uh, this demand of Minneapolis police divest from policing and invest into long-term alternatives. Just tell us how this is playing out now um, since the murder of George Floyd and with the trial uh, going on now. D.A. Bullock. Yeah, I think, you know, our response as a, as a group, as an organization, has been that, you know, because this is such a common practice, in the, the Minneapolis Police Department, that they're not reformable, like all those 
calls for reform that have gone on throughout the years have have really been met with with dead ears because that that form of policing is not reformable. So, uh, you know, our, our thought is then we need to invest in the things that actually keep us safe. We need to invest in prevention. We need to invest in intervention. We need to invest in all these things that actually keep us safe, especially in the black community. And so, you know, I think I think another number of things that have come out from this trial as we see it sort of broadcast is also just the fact that Derek Chauvin was, you know, he had he had performed the same restraint three weeks earlier um, on on a suspect and turned out to be the wrong person, another black man. And it was entirely unremarkable to the entire leadership. Of, of Minneapolis Police Department, he didn't get any kind of reprimand or demotion for it because it, it was it's such a common practice. And even when the 911 operator uh, tried to contact the sergeant and and identify, this is a 911 operator calling. This is an extraordinary thing, calling and saying something is going wrong on on the corner of 38th and Chicago. The sergeant was really nonchalant about it because they do that all the time. And so we're saying the only way to keep black folks safe is really to just stop that interaction between black people and the police department and then invest in, in the type of real public safety that, that would really, you know, um, result in us being safe. Like I would prefer to um, invest in Darnella Frazier who took, took the video, the young woman who took the video was brave enough to, to stand in or, or Mr. Williams, who was brave enough to, to challenge the police looking out for, you know, other safety or Mr. McMillan, the elder who, who knew Derek Chauvin from his activity in the community and knew that he was, he was there to, to tell him that he was, he was watching him um, and, and known him from before from his activity. I would, you know, we would prefer to invest in in community members and and in designing our own public safety. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was just so sad hearing um, Mr. McMillan uh, say to uh, Mr. Floyd, "You can't win." And actually, yeah. what's coming out now about white supremacist groups uh, that have infiltrated U.S. law um, enforcement agencies in every region of the country? We're being told over the past uh, few decades, and you have new analysis uh, by a former. A special FBI a special agent who has written extensively the ways in which U.S. law enforcement failed to respond to far-right domestic terrorist threats. I'm making the connection between the two. I mean, we don't know about uh, Derek Chauvin's um, affiliation, uh, but when you look at the bigger picture, uh, D.A. Bullock, when you look at what um, what happened on January 6th with the takeover of the U.S. Capitol and who those people were, right, um, there, when you look at um, the spate of uh, police killings that have, that have happened, I mean, one piece of good news is that Georgia is now overhauling their citizens' arrest law after the Amman Arbery killing, but, you know, Brianna Taylor, there's still no justice there. D.A. Bullock, putting all of that together, 
alongside the vicious attack of voting rights that targets black people. I mean, undermining a major piece of the civil rights movement uh, that was won uh, the Voting Rights Act. And now this kind of public lynchings, because, you know, that's certainly how I and a lot of other uh, people see it. You know, it, it really gives us the context in which we're trying to move. And a lot of us know very well that if something happens, we're very careful to find some other way not to call the police. Because if you call the police, rather than getting justice, you yourself might end up being criminalized. Uh, let's get your final thoughts uh, on, on all this, because the, this trial and the outcome of this trial, there's an interrelationship with that history, with that present day attacks happening against our communities and what could potentially happen um, with the outcome of this trial. Uh, D.A. Bullock. Yeah, I think it is it is a time of reckoning for the United States to really look at in 2021 how it is it is difficult to discern what is white white uh, nationalist extremism from just common right wing um, belief system and philosophy, which a lot of police officers hold because those are the the places they recruit from. Those are the you know, the type of mentality that comes into communities and polices other people, right? So we're seeing that play out in real time, and we're seeing the connection between that ideology, how it's it's pretty much entrenched in policing. So in order to, to release ourselves from that ideology being of authority, especially lethal authority over us, we have to we have to disband and dismantle that entire system and in order to build something up that's truly equitable truly fair and equal uh justice under the law and accountability for anyone who who does harm and a way of of like restoring communities and building them back up as a result of of individual harms that are done right like you know because we're paying the price not only from the crimes themselves but we're paying the price for having individuals extracted from our communities and, and incarcerated and then put back in our, our communities without any kind of restoration, without any kind of building them back up. So they come back, only their only device is to, to commit more crime. So, you know, we've been failed by this system um, from, from start to finish in, in any way that we've been connected to it so I, I feel like what we're seeing right now is 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 like we're seeing it laid bare for the rest of the nation who probably assumed that we had advanced quite a bit since the voting rights act or we advanced quite a bit since um you know the selma bridge when police were employed to go out and and harm black folks for just demanding their rights we're, but we're not very removed from that. That's that's what we're finding out. That we're we're really we're still relatively in a blink of an eye in, in terms of time. And and there's a lot more work to be done. And there's really like radical work to be done. And not radical in a scary way, but more as like if we really want to change something, then we have to go to the root of it. We have to uproot those weeds, and then we have to plant the seeds for something beautiful to grow. And that, that's what we're invested in and, 
and interested in. Yeah, and just finally, finally, I mean, getting back to this collective PTSD, I mean, I find even though, you know, I'm a journalist trying to uh, get the story out uh, to our audience across the country about what is happening, but it really is emotional. Um, you know, watching the videos and, and even doing the interviews and, and listening to people like yourself on the ground. And I, I'm just wondering, too, how you are doing and, 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 and people, your friends and family, people that you, um, you know, you campaign with, because a lot of people don't necessarily understand that this kind of thing and just even day to day racism, much less being forced to, you know, having to watch and this kind of public lynching happen has an emotional uh, impact. It even has a physical impact impact on just the mental, emotional, and physical health of, uh, of black people. Um, and I, I wonder if you, you know, have any thoughts on that and, and how the community is really trying to, um, you know, address this and somehow get through this and take care of each other. Um, your yeah, final right. thoughts, D.A. Bullock. Yes. Thank you for asking that. I mean, I think I really appreciate that that consideration and thoughtfulness, because I think it, it often goes uh, sort of un, unsaid and unmet about, you know, how we we greet Mr. McMillan now, like after he's off of the stand and we, we wrap him in love and take care of him and make sure that he's, he has to heal from that trauma and we all have to heal from that trauma as, as a community. And, and then often we're re-traumatized so he had to be re-traumatized in order to try to seek this, this individual justice. And so I, I think we, we are reaching out to each other and making sure um, that we have a self-care plan or a plan to, to take care of, of ourselves and take the time that that needs and, and the healing that that needs. And just, and just letting the general public understand that we do need time and we, we're not the expectation that we should just get over this or we should hinge our healing on um, a, a guilty or innocent verdict. It, it is not that simple, and, and we have a great deal of healing to do and a great deal of being there for each other to, to do. And I think that's part of what we want to invest in as well is, is our healing, our mental health, and our, our wellness. I think that's a, an important part of public safety that's often overlooked. Right, and and including justice as a healer in and of itself, and will we see any? And um, what what will it look like? Because the the it's a lot bigger picture, as you say, than just simply um, what the verdict will be. Um, but D.A. Bullock, for people who want to find out more about Reclaim the Block and the kind of um, campaigning and organizing that you are involved in, what should they do? They can go to reclaimtheblock.org and uh, they'll see some of the, the work that we're doing here locally, but also see our connections to national and international groups who are all having this same conversation. That's, that's another thing that's, that's really encouraging is that a lot of people all over the world resonated with what happened to George Floyd, the tragedy of what happened to him, and are, are dedicated to that not happening again. And I think that's true justice, is that we 
not whether some individual cop goes to jail, but whether we make sure that there there is not another George Floyd. This, this should never, ever happen again. George Floyd, a father and a grandfather, leaving a lot of people grieving. D.A. Uh, Bullock, thank you for your work and for taking time to join us, and we hope to speak with you again. We're going to be continuing uh, to cover this story and this trial. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.